Shall I? All right. Good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, who haven't met, my name is Azim. I'm Adam, one of the emergency medicine faculty here. And uh, I'm going to give a... Hey, Mike, you're going to hit the run slideshow. I don't know if they'll let me do this with this narration. Okay. Anyway, so I'm going to be giving a talk on delivering news of death, okay? And this is, you know, I, I think this is kind of an acquired skill. I think some people are more skillful at it than others, and I've seen some very good ways of being it done, and I've kind of seen, like, the the real bad ways of being it done. So I, I thought this was important to kind of talk about. Um, the other thing is my wife's a social worker, and she thinks this is very important, so I tend to agree with her on things like this. So I, it is important. So the objectives of this talk, we're going to kind of understand why the proper delivery of the news of death is important. So not so much, not as important as what you tell them, it's also how you say it is important. Um, we're going to review the overall framework of giving news of death to the living, so just kind of the, the mechanics of it. And we're also going to review some special considerations in emergency department deaths. And then we're also going to hopefully have a role play here at the end to kind of play. So why is this important? Over 90 million people visit the emergency department every year, okay? About 340,000 of those people die in the emergency department, okay? This is what's most important here. You know, a lot of these deaths were unexpected in the emergency department or what's perceived as unexpected by the families. You know, as opposed to 7% in the inpatient service. Well, that makes sense, right? If they're lounging around in an ICU for days or, or they're ill when they come in, you know, people can start mentally preparing themselves for a death. But oftentimes, you know, in the emergency department, people are not prepared. Either they don't know, it's been a traumatic accident, you know, some type of severe deterioration in clinical status. So there's a, you know, we, we have a challenges already upon that because we don't have that relationship built in. Um, like I said, we don't have that established relationship. You know, if you've got cancer, you know, if you've been a family physician or internist, you've kind of worked with that family for a while, you know, you've got that relationship. But we oftentimes don't. Um, and oftentimes, most healthcare providers don't have sufficient formal training in like death notification. You know, they just, you just, you just don't. And I think that it's important to spend this time that we have today just talking about that. And I look at it as an, an acquired skill. Okay. There's, you know, there's people that are just better at it than others. And I think these are people that have A, thought about it. You know, and two, they've, you know, I guess you don't have, you don't have too much experience in telling people that, you know, your patients died. But some people are just better at it than others. Uh, this lecture into action. So number one thing is family preparation. So if the resuscitation or the medical therapy is not going well, I would encourage people to start preparing the family for a potential death. Okay, this isn't the situation where you know you're like shocking away and the family thinks that things are going well. If you sense that things are not going to turn out well or they're not going well, this is the time to start laying that groundwork. Um, mainly because people are a lot happier if you tell them their family members are not doing well and then they do well, they think you've done a great job. But if they have the perception that things are going fine and the next thing you tell them, oh, your dad died, they'll be like, whoa, what's going on? You know, so that preparation, laying that groundwork is very important. If the family arrives in the ED during the resuscitation, I would tell them right away. They're like, you know, we are actively resuscitating this patient. We're, and I would tell them in lay term, you know, we're, pressing on their chest or shocking them, whatever it is, I would tell them right out of the gates. You just pretty much start preparing at that. Unless there's a very specific reason, more, more and more of the literature and more and more of the readings suggest that you should allow them to view the resuscitation if they want to, okay? Like there was like the old school thought, well, oh, we don't want to, you know, let them get in there, get involved and see the resuscitation. But more and more, you know, families, A, request doing it. And more and more people are allowing it. And I think, you know, it practices vary amongst different, you know, providers. But I'm of the school of thought that if they want to, you know, I'm okay with that. Um, the family should be kept updated as well. And this is hard to do when you're running the resuscitation to keep people involved and keep them updated. So either you should do it yourself or designate somebody to do that, okay? And I would do that on a regular basis. You don't want to go from... Things are going great, and then they code, you know, and the family just misses what happens in between. And the next thing you're telling them that they're, they're dead, you know. So you, you really need to keep them updated on um, a regular basis. And also identify who is going to be the contact person for that family. We've all run into situations where you go talk to a family, 
and you come back, and like four more people show up, and you have to regurgitate the whole thing again. Okay, so early on, you identify. You're like, all right, who is the one person that we're going to talk to, and then they're responsible to be telling all these other family members that are trickling in as to what's going on. Then you can kind of summarize, so you're not regurgitating or rehashing everything every single time. Okay, this is very important. This is with this mining accident. You guys heard about this in West Virginia. Okay, you can see why if you've got too many people, you know, at the controls there, how things cannot go well as far as communication. So one person, find out who it is. Um, where to put them? These are not the people to have in the hallway. Okay, so get them to a room where there's it's private. They have a telephone, you know, Kleenex, and a bathroom. Okay, just creature comforts because you'll be surprised how you know it's a lot e easier it is to to handle a situation like that when you provide them with some creature comforts as opposed to them in the hallway, you know, or, or next to like the drunk guy. Okay, don't put them next to the guy that's getting the cold green. All right, this is not you know. So there's just little things. But it can make this go a lot easier. Um, and you should try to keep them in that area. You don't want people wandering around. Okay. You know, you'll see, traditionally you see when things aren't going well, you'll have like the people, like by the smoke shack. You'll have some people in the room. You'll have some people in the hallway. Some in the cafeteria. And it just becomes a big mess. So if you encourage them to all stay in the same area, um, that's helpful. And I think your social work can kind of help you keep everybody corralled as the best possible. So, so you're, so you're kind of preparing them, you know, oh, things aren't going well, and so you've got a death in the emergency department. Okay, what are we going to do? The first thing is collect yourself. Okay, it's tough when you're, you know, involved in this resuscitation, you know, the adrenaline's pumping, um, and all of a sudden, you know, it, the, the best of your abilities is not work, and the patient dies. You know, just take a moment just to kind of collect yourself, because the adrenaline rush of the resuscitation is still going strong, but you don't want to just just convert that into, you know, talking to family and things like that. You really have to maintain control. Um, start thinking about what you're going to say while you're collecting yourself, okay? Because like I said, this is kind of an acquired skill and how you present things. You know, you just don't want to, um, you know, you, th medicine's changed, okay? Like, you know, my grandfather was a physician, and, and he used to say things to his patients that are just not acceptable anymore, you know, as far as like presenting things, you know, so you have to start formulating what you're going to say. Change your clothes, you know, if it's like, if you look like you're a scene at a mash, you know, they have blood all over the place and you still got your mask on, you know, that's, that's, that's not acceptable, okay? So change your clothes or at least, you know, compose yourself in that way. This is not how you want to enter the room, okay? Families don't like that. They don't like seeing their relatives' blood all over your clothes, okay? So, you know, you have some resemblance of some hygiene when you go in there. Um, you know, put on a white coat, you know, or change your scrubs, whatever it is, do that. Set aside time to deliver the bad news, okay? So, like, don't page anybody. So, you know, so they'll be like, yeah, can you page neurosurgery for me? I'm going to go tell this family their grandpa just died. All right? Don't be paging people. This is not the time to take the call from Cookie, like, in the specimen control about, like, mislabeled, like, blood tubes. Okay? <laughs> Hold all your calls, okay? You, this is, like, a dedicated task. You know, liken this to like suturing or intubating. This is a dedicated task. Don't commit to anything, okay? And tell your partners or whoever that you're going to go do this. You know, so you know if you got if you're single coverage, you know, tell the head nurse. If you're, you know, more than one person, tell your colleague. Hey, I'm going to be gone here for a little bit, so take care of business for me. Try to get an idea of who's there. Okay, you get a wide variety of people show up. You know, you get everybody from immediate family to you know, Cousin Gilbert who just showed up from like California to farmer, you know, the, you get farming, farm families, you get the whole town shows up. So find out who is there. Um, don't go alone if you can avoid it, okay? It's intimidating, right? You open the, creak open the door and there's like 50 people there all staring at you. It can be intimidating, okay? So go with help. You know, take a social worker or, or a clergyman and or a nurse. So you don't have to do this alone. Sometimes having some moral support, you know, and other people to kind of interject things as well is helpful. Um, and take that cleansing breath before you enter the room, okay? It's tough. So just kind of gather yourself. So we're getting into the delivery here. Identify yourself and the team members, okay? You know, it's, it, a lot, there's a lot of people, you know, just because you've got like scrubs and a white coat on doesn't mean anything, you know? I mean, the person in the cafeteria does too. So you got to identify yourself like who you are, okay? You can say, you know, I'm Dr. So-and-so, I was a physician in charge of this, you know, 
of so-and-so's care, okay? Right away, find out, tell people who you are. And identify the leading family member, okay? And it's different in different cultures, okay? You have to understand that. Just because you see a guy there doesn't mean he's a guy that's in charge, okay? It could be, you know, it could be the mother. It could be, like, the matriarch. It could be the patriarch. It could be, you know, um, certain cultures. If the father has died, oftentimes there's a son that's considered to be, you know, the lead family member. So identify, like, who's in charge in the family, I would ask. I would be like, you know, I, I, I need to talk to, you know, I need to discuss with you. Um, and I would ask them, are you, you know, Mr. So-and-so's wife, you know, whatever. So you can get a general sense of who, you know, steps forward or who kind of, at least just from their posture, who's the person in charge. And um, and, uh, and oftentimes I say, you know, I, I need, you know, oftentimes people know that what's happening. I say, you know, I need to talk to you about this. Is there... You know, I'd like to address all of you, but I'd like to talk to one person, you know, and answer questions, things like that. So those are kind of techniques. You know, you can use verbal cues. You can kind of see how their posture is, and you can kind of tell. Go ahead. Oh, hey, for those of you who don't know, Judy is one of our social workers in the ETC who's here to help me. So yeah, I would just ask them, you know, and then and just kind of based on your own knowledge of, you know, just the different cultures and things out there, you, you get a general idea. Um, you know, if the if the deceased is an adult, you know, I identify. I encourage you guys to identify that person by their proper name. So, you know, Mr. Jones or Mrs. Jones, whatever. You know, you just met this person like half an hour ago. You know, try avoid calling them like, you know, Floyd and things like that. Just, you know, you can't go wrong by dressing somebody with their proper name. Um, you know, if the deceased is a child, you know, I think it's appropriate to, to, to use, you know, a first name. You know, it'd be kind of odd if you just, you know, you got like a three-year-old and you're like, well, you know, Mr. Smith, you know, died. So just, uh, but I think this is important, you know, how you do it because some people can get offended if you just go in there and barrel in and call them by, you know, just their first name, you know, without showing their, their due respect. Right. I think it also depends. So you know, if you're, yeah, if you're 30 and somebody who died is like 76 and fought in World War II, you know, probably not a good idea just to, you know, barrel in there and and do that. So I think it also depends. My attitude has been you can't really go wrong by calling somebody like Mr. or Ms. whatever for the most part. So um, give a brief summary, okay? This isn't like Grand Rounds. Okay, they don't care. Like they got like a milligram of epi, they don't. Okay, so I always start off by you know getting in there and I give a brief summary of exactly what happened. You know, they were brought in, use lay terms. You know, put a breathing tube. You know, we gave medicines to help. You know, their heart. It you know it didn't work. You know, you just use lay terms. You know, they're not getting CME for your like presentation. Okay, just like get to the point. Um, keep it simple, you know, and use non-medical jargon. It's tough. We're, we speak a different language as healthcare providers. If you think about it, we speak a different language. And you have to understand not everybody's that, like, you know, medically sophisticated. So use, you know, simple language. Um, keep a, do a brief introduction, okay, and tell them the patient has died. Okay, that's very, very important. If you take nothing away from this, keep it brief in the introduction, and tell them patients has died. Don't use, you know, the euphemisms like passed on and all these other things. People have no idea, like, you know, you know what you're saying. I had, well, I had one person that I actually saw this done. Somebody said they've, you know, they've like gone upstairs, and the patient thought the family thought they'd been transferred to like the inpatient floor. Okay, if they didn't understand the person had died. They're like, yeah, your, you know, your dad like went upstairs, and they were all excited. They're like, oh, we went to the ICU. You know, they got into a big problem with that, okay? So use the word died. It's not a bad word, okay? But there's no, you can't be confused with died. There's no confusion about that. So use that word. I would encourage you to do that. You know, stay in business. Um, stop talking after you tell them. So what I do is I would say, you know, we, you know, we gave all these, we, we gave medicines to try to restart their heart. We pressed on their chest and we were unable to, um, you know, revive your, you know, Mr. Smith. 
you know, you can say, um, I'm sorry to say, but he has died. And I just stop. Okay? And just let it sink in. Because some people, it doesn't sink in. You know, because if you just go into your next sentence, or if you keep going on, they don't realize you just told them that so-and-so died. Okay? So I say that, and I just stop. Okay? Let it sink in. Um, you know, if you're comfortable, you know, with it, some people kind of do the full hug, some people do the side hug, you know, some people do nothing, you know, and there's no right or wrong, you know, some people are more comfortable with than others, and, and that's okay, you know, I mean, if you think it's appropriate, and some people will approach you, you know, I've had families that will, they'll come right at you, you know, and, and, and it's okay, you know, I've hugged people before, and, and that's fine, but if you, you know, if there's, Agitation, or if it's like culturally inappropriate, you know, obviously avoid it, because there's, you know, there's some, um, you know, obviously if they're angry, you know, or, or potentially violent, that's not the time for the hug, okay? And then if it's, yeah, and then if you think it's culturally inappropriate, you know, if it's just not, you know, it's it's avoid it. Processes, if there's there's ways to address that through a formal process, you have emergency medicine clinical directors. You've got your department directors. If you feel there's an egregious error or something, there are mechanisms to deal with that. But telling the family that Dr. So-and-so blew it is not appropriate. There are, there are formal mechanisms to, to address that. And we have that too. You know, even with the error medical part, if there's something we pick up that they treated appropriately, there are, there are ways in place to, to appropriately and respectfully address those issues. And I think that's the time where you use what Dr. Ahmed said, you say, you know, I wasn't present at that previous evaluation, but what I do know is this. And so you, you kind of steer them away from that. So, all right. Um, answer questions, which makes sense. You know, if this is, the, the coroner of the medical exam needs to be contacted, okay, for any death, essentially. It's, I mean, that's, at least that was my experience before I came here. This, anybody died in your emergency department, you had to let them know. Then they're going to decide if an autopsy is necessary or not. There are certain criteria where an autopsy gets done no matter what. You know, if you're 22 and you're dead, you know, have, uh, you know and it's suspicious, you're going to get one. So you have to let them know that the coroner of the medical examiner will need to be contacted. You know, and allow, you know, the social worker or the clergy person to assist. You know, you don't have to go in there like commando and like do it all yourself. I mean, there's trained professionals out there that can help you do this. You know, use their skills. All right, so the, the grief reaction. So they vary among individuals and among cultures, okay? I mean, I mean you've seen it all in your, your training or your practice experience. Uh, people may express, you know, denial or, or anger or guilt, some of the stuff that we've talked about, you know, did I miss something or, or you know, Dr. So-and-so, like, blew it, things like that. You can have a, a wide variety of reactions. You know, be prepared at all times for, for violent reactions, okay? You just don't know what people are going to do um, or any behavior that enda might endanger the safety of the medical team or others. So, you know, I mean, you don't have to go in there with, like, the, the code green, like, shield, okay? But just be, you know, be aware that some people just may not do well. You know, families may not believe what you've told them. You know, they just cannot register that, you know, their dad is not coming home. You know, it's tough, especially if you've got younger dads, if you've got, you know, a spouse, and there's, you know, they're kind of a, a younger couple, you know, when the spouse has died or, or a child. They just, they just may not register. Um, they may insist on seeing the deceased person, and by all means, I mean, I would encourage you to allow this, you know, if it's possible, and support them, you know, sometimes... Yep. Well, yeah. I mean, unless there's some horrific, like. And there's, there's blood and guts everywhere. Yeah. Well, I didn't say when the patient didn't have a head. So it was a, it was a little difficult. We we went in there. No, it was. Yeah, we we actually showed it to him, but it was you know it. But for the most part, you're right. It's always going to be possible. But we had a I had a guy that was snowmobiler that was snowmobiling, and there was a retaining wire. And he got decapitated. Um, and, the, and it was in the middle of winter, and they couldn't find his head. So, um, so it was a little difficult, but we did. We got around it. So, um, you can clean them up a little bit, but you can't take any tubes or anything. Right. And I'm going to talk about that as well. So, uh, for the most part, like like Everson said, you know, there's no reason why the family is not going to be able to be, should not be able to see the uh, the deceased person. Um, 
The families may become severely angry or agitated at the news of death, kind of like we talked about. You know, and some of this may be directed at the medical staff. You know, Dr. Miller, you just you blew it. You couldn't get it done. You know, so so we've all you know, we've, in some way or another, we've had some anger possibly directed at us as the medical staff, is that we were incompetent or or were unable to do our job. You know, they may accuse you of like negligence or malpractice. You know, we've all heard, "I'm going to sue you." You know, we've all heard that. So just kind of be prepared for that. You know, you should you should protect yourself, but at the same time, you know, allow the family to express themselves. So be aware. You know, be by the door if you think this is going to get violent. But at the same time, you sometimes you just have to let people kind of vent or kind of express their frustration. So it's a fine line between, you know, um, protecting yourself and the team, but at the same time, allowing the family to express themselves. I think that's that's one of the most important things is just understanding that that's a normal grief response. Because I've had that happen a number of times. You get some big 265-pound dad, angry, standing up, and he's yelling about it. But if you show that calm behavior that you know that's part of the grief response and let him get it out, yeah. I, I've never had anybody actually take a swing or any do anything. It's more their own, you know, and once that's out, it kind of turns around and it helps them to know that, you know, that's okay. That's right. part of it. And even if they make those kind of comments, it's much more reassuring to them to see how comfortable you are with that. Right. Even if they threaten to sue you, that sort of thing. At some point, though, you've got to be, you got to set the boundaries. Right. Appreciate that you're upset, but... You can't talk about. I mean, you can't use that kind of language, or can't make those type of you know threatening remarks. Yeah, that's how you leave. That's how you leave Judy in there. <laughs> that's like when you check your pager. You're like, well, I gotta, I gotta go, but Judy will be more than happy to. <laughs> Look, I got, I gotta go, but uh, Judy will be more than happy to absorb your violent reaction. Right. Um, like Mike said, you know, de- taking a defensive posture, or arguing is often counterproductive. Okay. Um, you know, if, if they, they're like, yeah, we're going to sue you, you know, you're like, okay, you know, I'm just, I would just let it go. Just arguing with them about the merits of their case, just not a good idea. Um, don't take the angry outburst personally, and it's easier said than done, you know. Um, like Mike said, it's, it's tough when somebody's laying into you or they're accusing you of various things when you know that you've not done that. But oftentimes it's just, staying calm yourself will often allow the situations to kind of cool off. I've never, I, I'm not of the school of thought that, in a situation like this, kind of getting into like a debate or an argument is helpful. It's just not. Um, like we talked about previously, you know, there's always a guilt reaction. You know, there may be some hidden issues um, between the living person and the deceased that we don't know about. You know, who knows? There might be some unresolved issues. You know, that that may come to play now. You know, there's some some argument, and so on. So and so hadn't talked to somebody for like a year, and all of a sudden they're dead. Okay. So you have to be aware of that. You know, you can be supportive without being patronizing. And these are long-term issues that we're not going to sort out in the emergency department. You know, they may need some formal counseling to sort those issues out. But it's just important to be aware of that where somebody, somebody is, you know, has a terrible reaction, you know, maybe because they had an argument and they haven't talked to them in, in a couple of years. The culture component. Um, this is something you have to keep in mind, the cultural aspect of this. Some cultures react with very strong outward displays of emotion, okay? That's culturally, that's what's appropriate for them. Some say nothing. They will just sit there, you know, or they'll remain silent. Um, and some are a hybrid. They'll do a little bit of both. Or you have families doing a little bit of both, okay? There is no right or wrong, okay? However people grieve in whatever is appropriate for them, that's appropriate for them, okay? You know, I've, I've had situations where they don't say anything. They just kind of get up and leave, you know, and it's, I don't think it's because they cared any less about their family members. It's just what's appropriate for them. Okay. Um, avoid injecting religious references or philosophical statements. Okay, this is not the time to quote, quote like Gandhi. All right, just avoid you know interjecting anything like that. Even if you yourself are like a very religious person, those people might not be. Okay, they may be atheist. You don't know. So even if you yourself have you know strong religious belief, this is not the time to be introducing those type of things. Um, oftentimes silence, you know, is the best. You know, you kind of give your your delivery, you know, you kind of say the things that we talked about and then just, you know, remain silent and let people kind of 
talk amongst themselves or talk talk to you and ask questions. The other thing with religious beliefs, sometimes family members will actually bring that forward to you. They might be talking in a more, you know, oh, they're with God, they've gone to heaven, you know, and that's like part of their grief response. And they may even ask you if you're religious or, you know what I mean, your thoughts on on that. So it's something you might want to think about, but you definitely shouldn't be. Yeah. Injector, but you might think about how you might address that kind of situation. Right. And, you know, some people want to pray and things like that, you know, and, and I'm Muslim and, and I don't have a problem. I don't feel uncomfortable if somebody wants to pray, you know, I can, I can certainly, you know, participate in my own way. So some people will be like, you know, we should pray or whatever. And that's good. I'm not, you know, I'll say, well, I gotta go, you know, since we're praying. You know, I mean, that's inappropriate too, you know, even though I may not have be of the same, like faith, you can still participate in an appropriate way if you feel comfortable. Yeah, some people, that's important. Some people, you know, feel that's a way to heal, and that's good too. Do not medicate the survivors, okay? Unless it's like a code green, okay? Don't routinely, you know, you know, the physician may be asked to prescribe like a sedative. They're like, oh, you know, grandma's gonna have a hard time sleeping tonight. Can you give her something? I would avoid, you know, writing a script for like Xanax for grandma, okay? If she wants to check in, that's different. But don't be writing prescriptions on the side for family members, okay? And avoid doing this. You should refer them to the appropriate mental health professional. I think social work can help us get them hooked up with whoever. You know, I'm sure there's groups for grieving families and things like that. But just don't be slipping people prescriptions for Xanax. Um, severe agitation that's dangerous may need like acute chemical therapy. Okay, so the code green, the Haldol, whatever it is, that's fine. You know, but just you know, avoid like long-term. We're not like their psychiatrist, okay? We we can help them acutely, but get them to the people that need it. I also encourage the survivors, especially spouses, to see their primary care providers in the community because even having like special needs older people in the community getting a sedative then increases their risk of depression. I think that's a great point. And the other thing is just other issues. Their family physician um, or their insurance oftentimes can help them with other issues too, whether it's like if they can no longer care for themselves now if they're an older patient or if they need like Meals on Wheels or whatever it is, they, th those, the primary care providers have a lot better idea about their home situation than we do. Okay, that's one of the limitations of our specialties. We just don't know or don't have the opportunity to get to know the patients as well. So that's an excellent point. I think in addition to the, to the psychological or psychiatric component, they, they know a lot more about the general situation as well. I think if you can call the primary care physician, email them, or even just make sure they get a note too, that's really helpful yep. for the follow-up. And oftentimes, they'll, it'll be the same doctor for both people. Yeah, you sure work with your family practice doctor. Yeah, and that's another thing I'm going to talk about. I always say that right now. If somebody dies, it's it's I would consider it professional courtesy and essentially mandatory to call the patient's doctor or was on call for them and tell them so and so died. Nothing is more embarrassing for yourself as an emergency provider that somebody dies and their doctor finds out about it, like reading the obituary or three days from now because so-and-so didn't make it to their appointment. Or they okay. show up. Or they show up, you know. Or, yeah, or the family, yeah. Yeah, or the family, like, goes and tells them. You want the family going home and calling them and saying that. So if somebody dies, that's one of the phone calls that you make is to either the primary physician or whoever's covering for them if it's a big practice. But some primary physicians, I've called, I've kind of overridden the call system. They're like, well, so-and-so isn't called. I'm like, no, I think I really should talk to Dr. Miller. It's important. Okay, that's very important. You don't want deaths of your patients to be surprises. Okay. Yep. What, what, I, at this point, I, I rely heavily on our social work staff. Right. And that if they're not here at that point, then I do. I, you know, if, if, what's that, Shwam? Right. Yep. Right. So I would ask them, is there somebody that we can call to come be with you, take you home, whatever it is, you know, I would ask them, is there some somebody that we can call to help you? And more often than not, there is. One so. thing that I found helpful, which is 
maybe controversial, but I actually like patients if their family members have died, and um, especially if they're alone. I think the physical contact Sure. Like I said earlier in my slides, you know, if, if you if it's appropriate and you feel comfortable doing it, I th I think there is some benefit to that. I don't think that you know it's wrong or, or whatever, but it's a it's a personal decision that you'll have to make. Um, but that's a good point. You know, ask them if they're there alone. Is there somebody we can call? You know, even if it's a neighbor or something. If their children live out of town, you know, do you have a neighbor that we can call to help you? Okay. There's a lot of resources out there that you can you can do. Yep, okay. One of the things that I'd like to sort of get consensus from the group is that there are instances that come up where uh, nobody is there and you have to call somebody yeah. to let them know what's going on. And, there's no yeah. and I'll talk about that as well, actually, but that's okay. Let me get to that. And we'll, I want, let's get back to that, though, so we'll discuss that there. So viewing the body. So like Iverson said, by all means, there should be essentially no reason why people can't view the body. Okay, It's pretty much... It's it's a done deal. Um, it should be offered, and, but don't pressure. Some people don't want to. Okay, so I, what I do is I offer it, and if they don't want to, then I leave it alone. But you certainly, I do, I, you certainly should not restrict or discourage people. Um, place the deceased in a private room if possible. Sometimes it's not. You know, um, where I trained most of our deceased patients were based in the trauma bay, and there was it was a bay with curtains. It was tough, but if you can, you know, put them in a private room. Clean the body of obvious blood or secretions, like we talked about. Um, you know, close the eyes, cover the body except the face. Make it as respectful as possible, but at the same time, you should, they should be able to see the, the face. Um, if local protocol permits, you know, you can remove catheters and things, but if it's gonna, you know, for the most part, ask. Don't be pulling catheters out. Don't be taking things out. Okay? Always ask. And I'm gonna talk about that as well. If somebody has died, don't take anything out of them. Leave it in. The coroner of the ME might say, oh, we're not going to do the autopsy. And then I ask them, can we pull, like, the tube and things like that? And they'll be like, okay. But as a rule, do not be pulling ET tubes, you know, IVs, central lines, Foley's, anything you put into them, don't be pulling out, okay? That's very, very important. Don't remove anything, okay? If, if they're the ME in the corner is like, yeah, we're not going to be doing this autopsy, then I would I ask them, is it possible to pull these devices, okay? And especially before the family has seen them, and, and they'll tell you, okay? So safe way to go is just ask them. Don't pull anything. Um, bandage the disfigured areas. You know, if they've got some huge lack or you've just done like a huge thoracotomy on them, you know, try to cover that up if you can. Um, you know, inform the family members of what they're going to see. You know. So realize some people have never been in the ER before. It's hard to believe, I know, but some people have never been to the emergency department, okay? So they'll go in there and they're like, well, they see monitors and this and that. They have no idea like, what's going on. So tell them, you know, Mr. Smith is, is laying in a gurney. You'll see some monitors. You'll see a tube in him. He'll have some, you know, he may have like an IV in his hand. So let them know what they're going to be seeing so they just kind of don't walk into, you know, this room and all, this, all these devices and things are there. Accompany the family into the room, okay? Go with them, you know? into the room. This is not the time to say, oh yeah, it's the last room on the right. Okay. Actually go in there with them. Um, respect the family's wishes if they want to be alone. Okay. You can you can kind of get a sense, you know, if they're at the uh, they're viewing the their loved one, you know, you can say, you know, I, I can step out now to leave let you guys be alone. Okay. And I think that's appropriate. Um, continue using the deceased, you know, proper name. Avoid using things like the body, okay, or the deceased. You know, continue using that the, the deceased person's name. I think that's appropriate. Um, um, An ample time should be afforded, okay? It's not like the time to sign that room for like the GI bleed, okay? Just that room's off limits until this is taken care of. I think you need to give them permission to touch the body if, if that's allowable. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, many a times you've seen, you know, that, that, you know, the children or the spouse, you know, give them that last kiss or whatever it is. I think it's very appropriate, you know, to do that. Some people don't realize they can, you know, they can touch the body, so. Um, 
and we're going to talk about this. Actually, I'm glad Judy's here. We, we actually will talk about this. So, you know, requests for autopsy and organ donation need to be discussed as well, okay? This is tough. The organ don donations part's tough, and I'm glad Judy's here, so we're going to address that. Autopsy, um, oftentimes, you know, is, can come into play, and that can be a tough thing to talk about. Um, you know, further questions should be answered. Um, you know, their choice of a funeral home, you know, we also kind of need to know that as well. It's kind of a tough question to ask. You know, and I, sometimes I find myself having a problem, you know, asking about things. Some people don't know. Like, I don't know what funeral home I want to go to. You know, if somebody asks me, you know, some people just don't know. And sometimes you have to help them, okay? Um, this is huge. We just talked about this. Okay, you have to let their primary physician know. And the ME needs to know as well. And this when you just call when you call the ME or the coroner, this is just, uh, my mom's a pathologist. And these are kind of one of her pet peeves. She'll get these calls, and they, they have no idea like who the patient is. They have no history, you know. So it's almost like when you present to an ME or a coroner, realize that they're, for the most part, medical professionals. Some of them may be physicians, and you should also kind of give them like a bullet presentation, okay? Just don't call up and say, "Yeah, they died," and this and that. They need to know about like medical history and like what meds they're on and what happened, okay? So when you call an ME or, or like or like the coroner, or whoever. You got to give them a little bit of like a, a presentation, okay? A short like emergency department presentation. Just don't be calling them up and say, "Oh, so and so died," okay? Because that goes into their decision making if they want to post this or not, okay? So have all that information together when you call them. Um, you know, concluding the process, you can say phrases. You have our sympathies, but you know, I, I avoid saying I'm sorry. You know, you can say, I mean, because sometimes, you know. You did your best. I don't think you have anything to apologize. You can say I'm sorry for your loss, or you have our sympathies. But you know, avoid just saying I'm sorry because I, I really don't think you know you've, you've done your best and you really don't have anything to apologize for. But you can you know say phrases like that. I'm sorry for your losses. I think appropriate. Okay. Um, you know, assure that the family has adequate social support, like we talked about, like you mentioned. You know, is there somebody we can call? Is there somebody that's here or on their way? You know, those are things that um, you should assure. And at some point, they got to leave, okay? They have to leave the emergency department. They can't be there for hours. All right, it's tough to ask, but at this point, you know, you can talk to the person who's a lead person, you know, your social worker, your clergy can help you. They have to leave, though. This is, you know, they can't be there for five hours, okay? For five hours, every cousin, aunt. Yeah, you know, you, yeah. You know, like, oh, they're on a flight from, like, Wyoming. Well, you can pick them up at the airport. Okay, you can't wait for them to all show up. I think that's a point where, too, working with the social worker, even if you're there by yourself, if you're feeling like you're getting to that point, a good way to do it is say, you know what, this is kind of a small room. I know you have more family member coming. Yeah. We have a chapel or we have this other area you could go to yeah. as long as you need and right. have somebody else support them there. So, so that's, that's a good point. So you can give them an alternative location, but you got to get them out of the emergency department because, unfortunately, you know, more patients check in. Just because somebody died, the people just don't stop showing up. Okay. Yeah, just just normal creature comforts. So in conclusion here, hopefully you guys have a better understanding of why the ability to give proper notification of death is key. Just from the lecture and the discussion that we've had amongst ourselves with the various approaches, um, hopefully you're better equipped to do such a thing kind of after, after this lecture. And this is important. Remember, what you say and how you say it has a profound impact on the families, okay? So just remember that, that you have a very powerful role in, in how uh, long-distance notification. The best scenario is to give the notification in person, okay? That's the ideal, right? Face-to-face, -face, it's a lot better. Um, but if you can't, you know, you tell the person, the patient, you tell that person the patient's critically ill or injured and they should come to the hospital, okay? That's what I try to tell people, that, you know, so-and-so is just not doing well. Is it possible for you to come to the hospital? Okay, and then you know right away, can they come or not? You know, if bad weather or distance or other circumstances prevent the you know, survivor from coming, then I tell them the news. I try to gauge where they're at. You know, if they're out in, like, California, they're like, well, I can't come. Then I'll be like, you know, so-and-so, he's, you know, they're critically ill and, and they've died. You know, I, I tell them that if this, I try, I try to avoid, you know, um, just calling somebody up on the phone and say, oh, so-and-so died. I try to get a gauge, I try to gauge what their situation is before you just busted bad news on them. Yep. So you're saying if the person's already dead and you're calling them, you'll just... I try to get... 
I gauge what, I, first I gauge the situation. I'll call them and say, yeah, this is Dr. Ahmed, you know, so-and-so died. I ask them, you know, this patient was brought in critically ill, you know, and depending on what stage of resuscitation, if they've died already and I call them, I, I A, gauge the situation, you know, can they come to the hospital? You know, I say so-and-so is brought in critically ill, um, is it possible for you to come to the hospital? That's what I say. Okay. If they're a long ways away, sometimes a good way to preface it is, did you know that so-and-so, your family member, was brought to the hospital? And Because sometimes it'll be, yeah, the nursing home called me and told me they were really sick and I knew they were coming to see you. So you get an idea of they already knew at what point did they know. And if they say, oh, I had no idea it was a car accident, then you can give them that little bit of history that they were brought in and it was very serious. So I don't necessarily mislead them, but I get more of an idea where they're at, who they are, you know, those type of things, and then kind of, you know, deliver the news one way or another. If if they can come, if they live like 20 minutes from here, I would prefer them if they came in, and I can tell them in person. Yes, sir. I just have a hard time not saying I'm sorry. I don't know if it's just because the death always represents failure in medicine, or if I'm, my own feelings of, of uh, consolability or I just. I would say I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry, I have to tell you this. I think that's appropriate. I don't think I think I I think for yourself. I think I would avoid for yourself. You know, it made made the patient's family feel better. But I think for yourself as a provider, you know, I think I don't think I have anything to be sorry for. I think it's okay to say I'm sorry for your loss. You know, or you know, I'm sorry to have to give you this bad news. But you know, and this is it's it's a it's a small point. It's not a big deal in the end. But you know, just. You know, I'm sorry. I think just for your own self, you did you did the best you could, you know. But I, you know, I I just tend to say, I'm sorry for your loss. And I think that's a safe. You can't go wrong with that. Like no one can say no, you're not. I mean, no one's gonna come back at you. You can just say I'm sorry for your loss. This is notification is tricky. Okay, it just is. You just have to. You just want to have to know like, kind of situation. How and the other thing is, um, you know, same use the same techniques. You know, and you have to assess for social support. You know, does this patient, like, does this person have other people in the house? Are they alone? You know, are they, like, 80 years old and they can't drive at night? You know, are they, like, some 14-year-old kid? So you have to. Jenny. One thing I wanted to add to that is assessing whether they're on a cell phone at the mall or they're driving. Are they right. in a situation where they can safely take the news with them? Exactly. So that's why it's important to, like, set the stage because you don't have the visual cues. You don't have that stuff. So I think it's very important with long-distance notification to really set the stage. I think, it, it, like you said, it helps find out, is there somebody there with you, things like that. I've had that happen once before where a Mexican was by themselves, and she hung up on me. Right. She was like, thank you. Uh, right here. Click. And you know, wouldn't answer again. You know? If that happens or you're concerned, you know, the local police might need to get involved to go see like what's going on. Okay, if you have a situation like that, don't hesitate to get the local authorities involved to go do like a welfare check or, or whatever. Because you can imagine, it's like the patient who you're worried about, you call back and they don't pick up their phone. You know, it's like the worst. You're like, yeah, this guy had some chest pain, I sent him home, and you call him the next day and he doesn't pick up. You're like, well, I'll pick up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like a perfect example of that. Everson. Right. And it's so where you got to make that decision. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. That's why long distance notification is tough. I don't think you should lie to anybody, but like Jay said, I think you should have a good idea of what you're like delivering to people, and I think you should be honest with people at all times, obviously. But you just have a little bit of you got to use your judgment, just like anything else, okay? And that's what you know. That's 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 part of what this lecture. I want you guys just to think about that stuff. What you're going to do in those situations? There's no right answer, but there's just general guidelines, or just what makes sense, okay? Uh, coroner's cases, so we'll start going through this. Um, you know, the medical examiner may choose to investigate sudden, mysterious, unusual, or unnatural deaths. Um, deaths in police custody or violent deaths are going to be investigated. Um, medical devices need to be left in place, and the family needs to be advised of this. One of the questions you'll get is, like, can we take this tube out? You know, people will like that, you know, but you have to kind of explain to them that that's law. That's, that's, that's not medical. That's just law, that those devices have to be left in place. Um, 
autopsy. This is always tough. You should approach the family about autopsy if it's going to be necessary. So the medical examiner or the coroner is like, yeah, we have to do an autopsy. You have to approach them about it and talk to them about it. You have to let them know that it's like done by like physicians. I mean, it's a, it's a medical procedure. You have to, to deliver it like that, okay? Because people have all sorts of like preconceived notions about what an autopsy is and what, you know, they don't know what it is. And you have to describe it for what it is. It's a medical, you know, examination, okay? It's a medical procedure. Um, and, you know, and tell them that's, you know, done by, you know, professionals. And you have to assure them that their funeral arrangements, for the most part, are not going to be disturbed, okay? Because, um, there are, you know, there are, there's some religious constraints. Just for Islam, I'm Muslim. You, embalming is not allowed in Islam for the most part. You can't embalm them. And you have to be buried. If you die at night, you should be buried by sunrise. Okay? So sometimes you have to bend those rules because law takes precedence over religious beliefs and stuff. But you have to understand in Islam, embalming is discouraged. Okay? So there's things that you have to assure the family members that to the most part, you'll try to, to, you know, respect their religious wishes. But at the same time, law is law. I mean, you live in a country of laws, you have to respect the local laws. It can be a devastating um, incident. Uh, oh, my slides must have got mixed up. Basically, um, as far as the autopsy, um, I'm not sure how that switched around. You have to assure that, you know, respect for the body will, will be undertaken. Um, some families will want an autopsy. They're like, well, we want to know what happened, okay? And and that's, that's their right to... To, to request that, some families will not want an autopsy, and it's the physician's job to balance the medical examiner's wishes and the family's wishes. Um, and you have to also have an idea who has to pay for it. Okay, if the ME doesn't want to do an autopsy and the family wants it done, they may have to pay for it. Okay, so you have to know who's going to be paying for it. What's that? No, even in Islam, there's you even um, because in Islam. Uh, um, being buried in street clothes is against religion, as well as a coffin. So there's there's part there's, really, there's some, some cemeteries there. Muslim cemeteries have a separate um, area, and you go in a box. We go in a biodegradable box. You don't go in a coffin. Yeah, it's not forever. So. So, but yeah, fewer places that are heavily, heavily like, you know, like Muslim populations, like Dearborn, places like that, they've got huge Muslim cemeteries where they don't bury people in coffins. So, um, organ donation, um, we are definitely going to talk about that. You know, there's some organs that can be harvested up to 24 hours after death. If the body's refrigerated within four hours, things like cornea, bone, things like that, um, that are, you know, are available to help other people. So it's something they should keep in mind. There are many obstacles to organ donation. Um, you know, if it's a coroner's investigation, the family's not available, um, they're too upset that you're unable to really sit down and talk to them about it. Um, they're medically unsuitable. You don't know who they are. If it's a John Doe, you have no idea who this person is that's died. Um, you have not able to establish that good rapport yourself. Maybe you might be able to help get help from other people to establish that rapport, to talk about it. You know, time constraints, lack of knowledge of the process is another thing. Different institutions have different mechanisms of doing that. So these are all kind of obstacles to organ donation. Best time to approach the family about organ donation is after viewing of the body, for the most part. That's not during the resuscitation, okay? It's like, well, you know, I don't think this is going so well, but I think somebody could really use that kidney, okay? It's not the time to do it, okay? After you view the body, that's probably the best time. Um, sure, there's no charge for the harvest process, okay? That's another thing. You know, some people are already looking at a $10,000 funeral, okay? So you want to reassure people that there's no charge for that. And this is another thing. The body's not going to be disfigured, okay? It's done in a in an appropriate fashion. These are two things that you don't think about, but families do. You know, they're already, you know, they've got financial constraints and things like that, so it's important to assure that. Uh, viewing the resuscitation, like we talked about already, um, supports the viewing. They should ask that they would like to see it. You know, the, the big fear is that, you know, giving a false hope or like medical legal like concerns and things like that, but that's been traditionally shown to be just not true, okay? Um, As a question about organ donation, what about when maybe say the next next of kin or power of attorney is not necessarily clear, 
you know, and I mean, are we under the same kind of problems? Have you seen the same kind of problems as far as just like end of life care and DNR resuscitation? Yeah. Who gets to make those decisions? Judy, please take that one away. Judy makes that decision. Yeah, I just. Um, <laughs> here, has anybody noticed that see this hot pink card downstairs? We have what's called a family support program. FSP, you've got yours with you, what a man! Right at home, there are three of us social workers that cover the FSP pager. And um, Sue Whitty has it like 90% of the time, and the other two guys cover her. But typically, criteria is um, that, that you would notify one of us is a glass girl below four. Um, evidence of a brain death or pending brain death um, or if they're going to withdraw treatment. And it doesn't happen often in ER. But the times that there are times that as a department we've missed these and, and that's too bad. So there are some times that actually during resuscitation when you know that you could keep someone going for donation if it looks like it's headed to brain death, there may be, that is an opportunity to at least have someone to call FSP and to be able to come in and start dialoguing about it. Typically, families are most open to organ donation, they've done studies on this folks, after they have been given a grave prognosis or have been informed about brain death. You've got to give them one of those pieces first before you start talking about organ donation. And there are so few situations where organ donation in terms of solid organs is possible you know, that we really do want to try and, and best utilize any opportunity we have in that. Um, we have, right now, we have at this hospital like a 95% consent rate, which is huge. Um, nationally, <coughs> 60%. So we're finding that our process works. Um, and, and call, you know, put a call in. If you've got somebody coming in the door, you can ask. That, a, that heads up you give the MSP. We love knowing that. So we can start in and kind of just connect with the family and let them know that we're one of the social workers on call for tough situations is kind of how I usually say it. I don't say, yeah, I'm the organ donation queen. You know, you just kind of you can't go there. Um, but, uh, you know, let, and, and the SICU folks are great at this. Um, and the trauma folks know about calling the MSP. So we as a department need to do better at that. Um, I think going back to your question about if there's no one available, yeah, you can't make that decision. You've got to just, you've got to treat this, thing, this person medically. Well, the thing that worries me is in a situation where, I, I've had the situation and actually part of my presentation will be where there was a child death, mom died, father is estranged, they have no idea where he is. So now I have grandmother, aunts and uncles. Who makes that decision? You know, if grandmother makes a decision to go ahead and harvest organs, and then dad finds out what has happened, you know, and disagrees, I mean, is it my obligation to say, no, you can't make that decision? I have to find, you know, I mean, obviously if dad's involved, then he'd be next to kin, and that's it's that is tough. That's like a powder keg. That situation. And sometimes you have to play some defense and be conservative. Sometimes playing a little defense makes sense in situations like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we did a lot of that. I did it when I was in med school. I did autopsy rotation here, and we did a lot of that. So, all right, let's kind of burn through this. Yep. Is it, I mean, is it ethical to charge a family a bill for a $12,000 donation? 
Yeah. Yeah, because you have the two you have the two rounds and all that. You don't have the 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 apnea tests and the calorics and all that. So. Alrighty. Thank you. Next slide, please. All right. Uh, on the home stretch here, death of children. This is probably one of the most difficult situations that a healthcare provider will experience in their career. It's death of a child. A, a pediatric death can potentially paralyze an emergency department for the rest of the shift. I mean, this can be just a devastating um, incident. For not only for the family, obviously, but for the providers as well. And these family grief responses can be extra intense and you know possibly pathological. Okay, so you know the death of a child is is it's very devastating. Um, you know, a team approach of the physicians, nurses, and other you know help providers there is needed to properly handle the situation in regards to the survivors. Your crisis counseling may be needed for the medical providers themselves. You know, after you know, after your shift or whatever, you just need to just to kind of amongst yourself just kind of talk about this or, or get some help because it's very important. So that's about it. I love this. So. The other thing I would say there too, <laughs> even if you feel like, wow, that didn't go very well, it's amazing how many times families will come back three weeks later and leave you a note or say, you know what, thank you very much, you did a good job with that. So don't always feel like their response is a factor of how you did. Judy? Oh, sorry, Rhonda? Well, I'll give you my personal how I do it, and I'll let Mark address the official like way. I never, I traditionally don't sign it. I just don't. When I call the the primary physician or whoever it is, I tell them that so and so has died, and for the most part, they will sign it. I'll ask them, are you going to be taking care of the death certificate? And they'll be like, yeah, I'll take care of it. It doesn't need to necessarily be done right there. It doesn't. So I often will allow the primary care provider, whether it's the family physician, the internist, whoever, to sign it. I've never, I've done what three years of residency, two years out, I've never signed a death certificate. Ever. You know, it's so. No. Yeah. So. So you know, Rhonda, I, I play defense. If I were you, I would play defense. You don't have to do it. You're nowhere to say you're obligated to sign it. If you at all feel uncomfortable, don't. Then the the ME or the the coroner will do it. Oh yeah, there's people that will sign it. No. Okay. You, you, you're, under, you're under no obligation to sign anybody's death certificate. Okay. There are professionals in either elected or appointed positions that will sign death certificates. Okay. You as an emergency physician at no point have to sign it. Well, I'm in private practice. I sign hundreds of them. And moonlighting, I sign a few. If I know the patient, know the family, it's not an ME case. It's an old person, I'll sign it. Okay. At the university, I think I've signed to when they stick you for death, Dr. So, and, you know, the ICU settings are a little bit different, especially this like straight up ED death, somebody rolls in, you don't know who they are. I would I would discourage you from doing that. Okay, there's people out there that whose job it is to do that. Judy. Yeah. questions for clarification 
on the PLA's behalf. So don't be surprised. I mean, because I just think it's important because sometimes you do slip into medical jargon, and I will probably be taking notes so that when you leave, they'll say what all happened, and I can tell them what happened. And it's and I, I just need you to know that I think that the social workers here are here to help you and to to be interpreters on your behalf. And you, once you leave the room and things like that, and that um, call us anytime you've got a tough go. Well, thank you for your attention and participation. Okay, we were going to do uh, a role play. I think in the interest of time, we won't. But I'm glad that you thank you for coming and helping us with this presentation as well as um, telling us about like organ donation and things like that at this hospital. I think it's important. Um, uh, let's see, can you flip for...